This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. I should probably come up with a jingle so I can start singing the top of the show. Thank you so much for being here. Best part of my day. Best reason to get up out of bed. All of you. Much news to discuss. Yeah, yeah, everyone's focused on the inauguration. I'm just not that big on inaugurations. Don't know what else to say about it other than just come right out and tell you how I feel. I want minimal inauguration, although I'm not going to get my way on this. I, I, I think you throw a party. Here's an idea. I think you throw the parties at the end of the presidential term. If you're going to throw parties, why not throw parties after we've seen what you do for four years or eight years? And let's all see if there's really something to celebrate. I, I don't know if you go wild and, and party it out when you just take a job. Yeah, maybe you have a dinner with family or friends or something dignified like that. But I don't think you have to have rock concerts and all this stuff going on. And look, when Obama came into town, like I said, it was like Carnival in Rio de Janeiro or something. I mean, people were just dancing in this, literally dancing in the streets. They're all so excited. It was so great. I thought that was kind of unbecoming, but I wish they'd just tone all this stuff down. There's serious business to take care of here. Plenty of time in life to party. I don't think anyone's worried about Donald Trump enjoying himself enough in his life. And all of the people that are taking these jobs, and I'm sure there are reasons that I'm not thinking of right now that the Republican establishment would throw out there. They'd tell you that, well, this is necessary to get everyone excited and people have worked really hard on the campaign well, that's the case. I, I would think you party then right after the victory. I just think the timing of this is strange. It shouldn't be a Caesar-like procession through the center of Rome. This should not be a triumph in the ancient Roman sense of marching through the streets with the spoils of war and all of the most spectacular pomp and circumstance that one could possibly imagine at the time. I just don't like it. I do think that there's a, it, a, an acceptance now of an increasingly imperial and imperious presidency. That because we're in such a celebrity-obsessed culture, look at some of the top people in the Trump administration, other than Trump himself, who is a reality TV star. And I don't say that as a knock. It's just the truth. It's a statement of fact. It's like saying the guy's got blonde hair. He's a reality TV star, and there are other people who seem to be picking up very prominent roles, mostly because they have been talking heads on TV, some of them very smart and certainly well in keeping with those roles, but uh, or have the resumes that you would want them to have to do those jobs. I just don't like all this 
pomp and circumstance at all. I find it setting. I, I think it sets the wrong tone. This is not even a knock on Trump or the inaugur or, or the inauguration that Trump is having. It'll be much more scaled down than anything we saw with Obama. And it still remains to be seen whether there will be protests, Molotov cocktails, all that crazy stuff that the loony left, the anarchists, my old uh, my old nemeses, the black block, as you remember me from the earliest blaze days. No, I spent some time covering the black block. I went to some of their protests that turned into small riots. I saw them running around the streets of New York City, throwing uh, throwing things, kicking over trash cans, uh, making sure that they were running into police lines so they could get tackled to the ground. I know that sounds strange, but that is what they wanted to do. And then filming it and yelling about how police brutality, police brutality, all dressed in black, head to toe. Some of them have gas masks. They have backpacks that carry uh, helmets and other uh, devices, accoutrement, kit, gear, whatever we call it, that lets them get even deeper into the protests and avoid having to disperse because of some of the non-lethal response that they know the police are going to give them. But I digress. I don't like all this. I really resented it when I was in D.C. and there would be this, again, ancient Roman-style procession, although at, high, at much higher speed, of the motorcade across D.C. The president's traveling through D.C. You know, a, a, a few armored cars and a good number of Secret Service agents should, should be enough. I don't think we always need to have a traveling army inside U.S. borders with the president of the United States. That does seem to me to be a little little excessive. And it sets it sets the wrong tone, sets the wrong message, sends the wrong message when they shut down whole areas of New York City for fundraising visits. All that stuff. I don't like it. I don't think any of us should like it. And I don't think we necessarily have to just sit around quietly I know people have been told, sorry, you can't get to your apartment now. The president's visiting in a few hours. You're going to have to you know, walk 15 minutes that way and come around. For what? For what? So I, I'm not that fascinated by the inauguration stuff. Much more interested, much more interested in uh, how this is being talked about in the media. The effort to just hammer Trump. It is tireless they are indefatigable in the media they will not give up on this they will not tire they just keep pushing and pushing and hope that they're going to be able to destroy the trump administration from before it even takes office you've got uh, cnn my former employer Looking to hire somebody, this is a story from The Hill, hat tip Joe Concha. We've actually had him as a guest on the show before. That Donald Trump is looking, I'm sorry, that CNN is looking for a reporter to cover fake news. Quote, we're going to be examining the wave of fake news stories and the people behind them. But more than that, we're going to be looking at truth, what happened to it, why so many of us no longer believe it, and where these people are going to get their information instead. CNN wants someone with six years of writing and reporting experience who gets angry every time they see an inaccuracy. No, no salary mentioned in the ad. Why is the fixation on fake news such an important issue for us to push back on? Because this is all part of the liberal mentality. This is the way that leftists see the world. 
particularly their world and in this country, that it's not a question of debate, that there aren't two sides to the issue. There's their side, which is correct, and the other side, which is wrong, factually wrong, provably wrong, demonstrably wrong. And this isn't on one or two issues. This is on every issue. This is on climate. This is on economics. This is on taxes. This is on defense. This is on abortion. This is on health care. Go down the line. I sit here day in and day out, and I talk to all of you about what matters to the American people and what's going on in this country, and I am always aware that the other side often has arguments that should at least be taken in good faith, and there are trade-offs that we are making. It would be nice, it would be nice if we could have, as Bernie Sanders wants, a Medicare for all plan in this country everybody gets the government paying for all their health expenses that would be nice i'd like that currently dealing with all kinds of you know end of year reimbursement and new health care plan and all sorts of stuff be nice if someone else just picked up the tab all the time but they're going to pick up a tab for my acupuncture for shiatsu massages just kidding i don't do shiatsu massages they're going to pick up the tab for Physical therapy that is basically a massage. I mean, you get into what expenses are covered and what expenses are not. There's a serious discussion to be had here. But with the left, it's if you don't support Obamacare or if you don't support Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all, it's because you're wrong and you're a bad person. And with fake news, this is just an extension of that mindset, but it's extending that mindset into the news cycle. It's not that there are different perspectives and different editorial choices that can be made in good faith. It's that we make stuff up, we lie, we're wrong, and they're right. That's why fake news is such a fixation for them. There's no good faith argument. There's no balancing. There's no real debate to be had. It's just their way or we're bad people and we're dumb and we're wrong. So they're going to continue on with this meme because it's a way of not having to engage in argument or in, in, in debate. I mean, they'll argue, but it's a way of not having to engage in the ideas that the other side, our side, puts forward. And our people, roughly speaking, you know, some of you are going to tell me that Trump's not your people, but they are in power. They are the ones right now call or will soon be, I should say, calling the shots. So there's going to be an agenda that's not the agenda the left wants. Instead of addressing what's good about the Trump agenda and what's bad about the Trump agenda, they're going to say that this is informed by ignorance and by falsehood. That there's no real argument you made on this side. This sneering, condescending left has locked itself into this position and is not going to budge from it. The only thing that can make it budge budge is if we actually show Real gains that a majority of the American people can see and feel and know from policies that are not Obama's statist collectivist approach to everything. They're not Obama's balkanized American people constantly sliced and diced into specific identity politics groups. Going to have to show wins. Yeah, that's right. I know this is going to sound crazy to some of you. We're going to have to win until people get tired of winning. That's actually true. And not win as in win power. I mean win for the American people. Because the other side isn't going to change their tune on this at all. 
The most recent example of this, as CNN is hiring someone to look at fake news and to do stories on fake news. Washington Post's biggest story on fake news should be, uh, it should be reminded to all of us, was fake news. Nobody seems to care about that. They use the analysis of an anonymous online Russian fake news hunting group, and then it turned out it was all crap. And they said it was a correction. And, you know, I had some conservatives a little smarmy about this. Well, it wasn't a retraction. It's a correction. When you correct the underlying premise and data of a piece, that's actually a retraction. It's not really just a correction, right? If I ran a story that said that, you know, Bob, uh, Bob kidnapped Sue, and it turns out that Bob actually just picked up Sue from work and they're married, and then I have to say that at the bottom of the piece, that's not a correction, that's a retraction. Whether they want to call it that or not, the underlying premise was completely undermined. It was false. It was wrong. Let's talk about fake news for a second. Remember, this is very, it's not just a flavor of the moment thing. This is now going to be the way they argue against the GOP and against conservatism and against Trump all at once. And we all, for better or for worse, my friends, are all connected right now. Whether you're a rock-ribbed Republican, you're a constitutional conservative, you're Trump, Trump, Trump all the way, we're all on the same side of the aisle, whether we want to be or not. And there's an opposition, and the opposition is trying to defame and destroy all of us and our ideas. That's just reality. It's not fair, but as we all know, life isn't fair, and we don't all get a trophy. The left is upset about that, too. They're going to say that what we're trying to do is rooted in ignorance. They're going to say that whatever happens with this Congress, which has people like Paul Ryan running it. I mean, there are there are knowledgeable conservatives. He's not conservative on immigration, but he's conservative on other stuff. Knowledgeable conservatives who are in all of this. And. They write pieces that just sneer at us. I, I, I've gotten so into this that I haven't even had the time to tell you what made me go off on this rant, really, other than CNN's looking for a fake news reporter. There's a piece in the New York Times about Rick Perry that is just written to make Rick Perry look like a straight-up idiot. This is the New York Times, the most widely read left-wing newspaper in the country. The paper of record, the gray lady. It is an, a, a sneering, condescending hit piece on Rick Perry based on a single source that has since publication retracted. This is fake news. Run in the New York Times. This is when you have one person and you base an entire story around that one person's quote and you don't stop to think, maybe that one person doesn't have the level of access they need to know this. Maybe that's just their opinion. Maybe they weren't even around to hear the stuff that they said they heard, all of which has come out, by the way. When you run an entire major news story on that, what do we call that? Oh, people would say it's a mistake. At what point is a mistake that is reckless also fake news? People are going to say, well, you know, I heard from a guy or heard from a guy or heard from a guy and I wrote a story. I guess that's just bad journalism, but it's not fake news. No, at some point it's reckless. And, so, and at some point, recklessness and maliciousness are the same thing. I'll get into this Rick Perry piece. When we come back. Stay with it. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. You've got to read this New York Times piece to believe it, uh, team. It is so patronizing. It is so snotty, supercilious. It just makes me want to toss my cookies on my shoes, my boat shoes. Oh, no, I would never do that. Rather go barefoot. Learning curve. In quotes, as Rick Perry pursues a job he initially misunderstood, somebody please explain to me how anyone could take away anything from that other than, oh, yeah, Rick Perry's an idiot. He's going to be energy secretary. He doesn't understand anything about energy. Let me read to you some of the uh, some of the key passages here. When President-elect Donald J. Trump offered Rick Perry the job of energy secretary five weeks ago, Mr. Perry gladly accepted, believing he was taking on a role as a global ambassador for the American oil and gas industry that he had long championed in his home state. In the days after, Mr. Perry, the former Texas governor, discovered that he would be no such thing, that in fact, if confirmed by the Senate, he would become the steward of a vast national security complex he knew almost nothing about caring for the most fearsome weapons on the planet, the United States nuclear arsenal. Quote, if you asked him on that first day, he said yes. He would have said, I want to be an advocate for energy, said Michael McKenna, a Republican energy lobbyist who advised Mr. Perry's 2016 campaign and worked on the Trump transition's energy department team in its early days. If you asked him now, he'd say, I'm serious about the challenges facing the nuclear complex. It's been a learning curve. Oh, so they they talked to this guy who left the Trump campaign before Rick Perry was even named energy secretary. And they're basing this entire piece. This is the only source they have for the entire piece on. On that quote, that Rick Perry doesn't know anything, that Rick Perry's an idiot and he's taking a job he doesn't know anything about. And then they just get into the really they get into the, the resume comparison thing here. Mr. Perry, who once called the elimination of the energy department, will begin the confirmation process Thursday if approved, he will take over from a secretary, Moniz, who was chairman of MIT's physics department and the director uh, and directed a linear accelerator at MIT's laboratory for nuclear science. Uh, so and, and then they said before Mr. Moniz, the job uh, belonged to Stephen Chu, a physicist who won a Nobel Prize. Just saying, you know, oh, the Obama energy department secretaries are really smart. Rick Perry is really dumb. That's what they're saying. They're making this very explicit comparison so that you come away with, wow, Rick Perry, you know, I'm Rick Perry. I'm governor of Texas. I'm just, you know, hey, I just want to just go rustle some steers, everybody. I'm Rick Perry. It's not a good Rick Perry impersonation, but you know what I'm saying. This is the caricature they're doing of him. You know, hey, ride him, cowboy. I'm from Texas. I'm Rick Perry. Uh, the They go into some details here, uh, and they talk about, 
Rick Perry's background as, oh, I don't know, governor of Texas, which would tend to be a job that you'd think would put you in good stead for any number of other government roles. Um, and then they get into, uh, I'm trying to, oh, they, they also talk about the nuclear weapons and how that's a part of the energy departments. It's two thirds of their budget spent on refurbishing uh, nuclear weapons. And they get into how Trump wants to get into a nuclear arms race, possibly, and how Perry would be the first non-expert uh, to run the energy department. That's very important. To them. They have to have an expert running the energy department. It's a managerial job. The guy running the energy department doesn't have to be splitting, splitting atoms himself. Uh, it, it just goes on and on at, at length. And I, I just you have to read this piece because it is so it is so just full of contempt from the elites for Rick Perry. And then what you find out is that Rick Perry uh, and, and it was being spread all over the Internet. And then you find out that Rick Perry's knew he said safeguarding our nuclear arsenal on day one. He, he knew exactly. He gave public statements on what the energy secretary does. And that guy that the Times based the whole quote off of, he since said it was taken out of context and it's nonsense. This is fake news team. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're very happy to be joined now by Michelle Malkin. She is a conservative blogger, syndicated columnist, best-selling author, host of Michelle Malkin Investigates, which is on CRTV. You can go check out more at michellemalkin.com. Great to have you, Michelle. Thanks for calling in. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. So I was just talking before before you called in. I was I was talking to everybody about this piece in the New York Times on Rick Perry that basically says uh, Rick Perry is a dumb hick. He doesn't even know what the Energy Department is. We talked to this guy who says so. Now it's come out that guy is the guy that they based it on didn't say that or says that it's completely taken out of context. Statements by Rick Perry in public show he does know what the Energy Department does. Does the New York Times run a run a retraction, or do they just keep keep rolling with this fake news? Well, they'll just keep rolling with it. That that's how they roll. That's how they operate. And there's a reason why. For many years, I've called them the fish wrap of record, which actually is an insult to fish because they're way too good to be wrapped by that <laughs> piece of excrement. Um, but look, I mean, for so long, and I've worked in um, the so-called mainstream media now for some 25 years. I've worked in newsrooms side by side with people like this to pretend that they are arbiters of neutrality and objectivity um, and, and and end up being, you know, the worst kind of, of operatives in, on the political scene. And they have long had the character or narrative in their mind that conservatives and Republicans are stupid and they will do everything in their power to reinforce that fake news. I started out at NBC as a videotape researcher book in 1992, and there would be producers that would come to us and explicitly say, uh, find us video of Republicans looking stupid. This is how they gathered, quote unquote, news. And you have the Washington Post also mocking a uh, agricultural secretary nominee 
they had for Walter. Uh, I'm sorry for um, the guy who's coming in as the agricultural secretary. They're saying that he uh, Trump picks former Georgia governor Sonny Perdue, who once led a prayer for rain for agriculture secretary. This is a headline on The Washington Post. That is obviously supposed uh, yet again. This is like putting parentheses around it, saying because he's an idiot. could go on they, they even have the the post calling david galertner a quote fiercely anti-intellectual computer scientist who might become a trump science advisor yeah he's a yale university professor he's fiercely anti-intellectual i mean they, we, we could just go all day on the washington post and the new york times but michelle i, I want to get to the inauguration because i know you're going to be down there covering it uh, for crtv.com and you've written a piece on town hall that says Look, uh, there could be some crazy stuff. You know these leftist loon groups very well. You cover them extensively. You've written about them. What do you think we're going to see? And then what could we see if things really get out of line? Well, um, I'm holding my breath. I am here in D.C. We're going to be doing a live stream for CRTV.com for our own inauguration coverage. And and we'll have people out on the ground um, covering every part of of D.C. And, And these protests, I think, are going to... Um, really be quite a handful for law enforcement here. And I'm praying for each and every one of them, because over the last couple of decades, I've seen both sort of the so-called mainstream protests and the way in which they have enabled and provided cover for uh, a lot of extreme and violent elements. And uh, James O'Keefe has done great work in in, um, exposing some of their plans, um, but that certainly isn't going to dissuade uh, many of these hardcore black block types from doing everything in their power to sow uh, the seeds of anarchy and chaos. And we've seen it in past Republican and Democrat national conventions. We've seen it at the WTO riots in Seattle, where uh, I worked for the Seattle Times and and saw uh, the kind of troublemaking that they do, the property damage, the vandalism, uh, and the ways in which law-abiding people, and and especially small business owners, um, are the worst hit. So... um, the other thing, of course, is that, the, the, that this is going to be an, a special magnet uh, for every last grievance monger on the left um, to earn their 15 minutes of fame. The ways in which that social media and uh, the, the, the potential and incentive of virality um, has exacerbated the security problem, I think, um, also has to be on the table on the radar screen. And so, you know, at every level, law enforcement is going to be trying to um, prevent this kind of stuff from happening. Um, but it's going to be a cauldron here tomorrow, Buck, I have to tell you. I, I may be asking an impossible question because I'm not sure there's one answer or really there's there's any any answer that you could anyone can come up with to explain this. But it, it seems so clear that these groups that you mentioned and you, you mentioned the, the black block tactic that some of these leftist anarchist protests use. 
It all comes from the left of the political spectrum. There are tie-ins to SEIU. You can go to some of these, even the, the craziest, looniest, most violent and destructive protests in this country, and they have very nice, shiny placards that are uniform because they've been printed out somewhere. And I've seen some of the same ones at anti-cop protests as at Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. And then you'll all of a sudden see these people that, yeah, there's the socialist you know, workers of the world unite signs, and then there's also SEIU signs. So this comes from the left. And yet when things go really bad and hopefully they won't at the inauguration, I know you're down there covering it for CRTV.com. But when things go really bad, the left doesn't have to own it. How is that? You know, it's always like some fringe element, but yet it's always from the left. Yes. And, and that is a very trenchant observation about these signs, because some of those answer signs have been around since the Bush years and they use the same font. I think they, it's called Rent-A-Mob font. You know, there's Helvetica, there's Times Roman, there's Rent-A-Mob font. Um, and the obviously a lot of, of the funding and, and many of, of the conservative websites have, have reported and disclosed a lot of this funding does come from George Soros, but not all of it. Um, but ultimately, as I, as I raised in the, in the column that I wrote, you cannot say that it is fringe. And, and there are people on the ground who have been participants in these kinds of protests who have acknowledged that, yes, it is both the tacit and explicit tolerance of the so-called mainstream protests that make those fringe elements possible, and it's really not fringe at all. They've mainstreamed that kind of anarchy. And then at the political level, I pointed out that you have Democrat progressive mayors like Jean Kwan in Oakland who allowed those anarchist elements um, who hijacked uh, the protests there um, to terrorize that city. Or Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, uh, a, a classmate of mine at Oberlin College, who designated safe space for the rioters. Ultimately, the responsibility for that kind of social justice anarchy lays at the feet of the Democratic Party leadership itself. Uh, you went to Oberlin, I went to Amherst. There were commies all over the place, weren't <laughs> there? there. It's, 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 it's amazing, yeah. These small colleges, they're just... It's like their little satellite campuses from the Soviet Union, even though it's no more. Um, Michelle, uh, everyone can watch your coverage of the inauguration. Uh, where should they go? CRTV.com tomorrow, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern, and we'll be doing nighttime coverage from 7 to 9. We're going to have a lot of fun. My partner in crime will be Dan Bongino, so we're, we're, uh, we're going to offer something different. Give Dan a high five for me. Tell him I send my best, and he's Hello. a great American, and I'm proud to know him. And, uh conservative blogger, syndicated columnist, Michelle Malkin. Great to have you. Thanks so much for calling in today. Take care. Thanks, Buck. Uh, phone lines are open, team. 888-900-3393. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show. Discover more at theblaze.com slash radio. The Blaze Radio Network. So uh, CNN is clearly setting itself up as the Trump opposition channel. But, you know, being journalists all the time, even though it's not ideological, but it's Trump opposition constantly. And people say, Buck, what about the pro-Trump people they have on there? Yeah, they have them on there the way that someone at the carnival is invited to sit on the chair that if you, you throw the ball at the little lever, if you hit it, they get dunked in the dunk tank. That's a, that's that's the way that it is. Do you think any Trump supporter is going to get his own show? 
Do you think that there will be anybody who is raised to a position of prominence over there? Who supports Trump or supports the GOP? I think you all know the answer to that. Uh, but they have reporters who are, and yeah, okay, you report if you just report things. I, I don't, I don't put all of this uh, additional. Oh, you, you're a reporter. You must have all this journalism training and journalism ethics and all this other stuff. Uh, interesting, isn't it? That being a journalist, being a reporter, one of the few jobs for which there's no licensing. There's really no additional study needed. <laughs> it's like being a radio host. Uh, so. Let's just play. This is how Jim Acosta approached, and I have to hat tip Molly Hemingway over at the over at thefederalist.com for pulling together some of these different fake news or exaggerated news or partisan news incidents here. Um, but you have uh, Martin Luther King the third, Martin Luther King the third, uh, being asked to speak out against Trump. This is how a reporter from CNN asked questions in Trump Tower on MLK Day. And this is the way that journalists do their job. Play the clip. Isn't there something that just cuts to your core when you hear the president-elect refer to John Lewis as all talk and no action? I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Isn't that right? John Lewis is not all talk and no action. No, absolutely. I would say John Lewis has demonstrated that he's action. On this day, what would your father's message be to President-elect Trump? What do you think your father's message would be to President-elect Trump? This is the final answer I'm going to have because I'm going to reiterate what I just said. I think my father would be very concerned about... Can we stop this clip? Can you play the play his opening question again? Because his answer is much less interesting. Play that opening again from Jim Acosta at CNN. Please go. Isn't there something that just cuts to your core when you hear the president-elect refer to John Lewis as all talk and no action? I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Isn't that right? John Lewis is not all talk and no action. No. Is that a question or a statement, Jim Acosta? Is that a question or a statement? This, in a court of law, would be leading the witness or badgering the witness, both. This is not journalism. Sir, sir, um, this, is, this is a terrible thing that the person you just met with did. Tell me that it's a terrible thing. Tell me that it's a terrible thing. Well, you're not going to look great unless you say it's a terrible thing. And that's not the, the job of the journalist is not to establish what the position is supposed to be for the person of whom the question is being asked by the journalist. Oh, we're journalists. We're big J journalists. Please, son. Please. Nonsense. Uh, let's take Mike in California. Mike, you're on the Buck Sexton Show. Wait, we, we lost Mike? Oh, Mike. Mike, buddy. We lost you. We had you. You just called in, and then you bounced away. All right, I also want to get to... Um, do we play the play the this is this is fun play the Tucker exchange speaking of fake news in the left play the Tucker exchange from last night this is on Tucker Carlson tonight and he had this HuffPost writer on which HuffPost is just a cesspool of it's just it is just a a wet oozy pile of human refuse in digital online form uh, but but play what the exchange went like. This is he brought somebody on who says that Hillary Clinton's actually president and Trump isn't. <laughs> That's the premise. Play it. You put up a page from a magazine from 1987 that you said shows, and this piece claims that Donald Trump was 30 years ago recruited by the Soviets to run for president of the United States. This is a piece from a publication called Executive Intelligence Review. It's from your piece. Keep in mind. Do you know what Executive Intelligence Review is? 
<laughs> it's a news publication. It's uh, the EIR. They have uh, lots of archives of stories going back through the 80s. <laughs> and that uh, article is detailing. Go on. But, but do, you, do you know who publishes it? There's a bit of a delay, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Do you know who publishes Executive Intelligence Review? It's, it's the Lyndon LaRouche cult, the anti Semitic Lyndon cult. Lyndon LaRouche, that's right. Yeah, Lyndon yeah, LaRouche. I'm aware. So, oh, you're aware of that? Okay. So you put up as your evidence <laughs> a okay. piece stop. of propaganda stop. from the... Stop, stop, stop. Pause. So, so Tucker, uh, understandably, I would have assumed the same thing, thinks that no one... Huffington Post is one of the biggest websites in terms of overall traffic in the world. Tucker assumes that this writer for the Huffington Post could not be so insanely irresponsible and stupid as to cite a Lyndon LaRouche piece from... 20 some odd 20 plus some odd years ago as evidence of Trump being recruited by the Soviet Union. He he couldn't really do that. Right. Meaning that, OK, he's going to get a little wah, wah moment here with this guy who goes, oh, I didn't realize that's what it was. No, 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 no. This individual from The Huffington Post knew that he was citing a Lyndon LaRouche piece to say that Trump was recruited by the Soviet or by the Russian intelligence services and that that is a part of his argument that donald trump is not actually president and hillary clinton is this is not at a fringe publication this is not me finding some lunatic on twitter or facebook who's going on some rant this is not what the left does and make the alt-right seem like it's a major part of american republican politics and no no this is a writer for the Huffington Post, which is a revered leftist digital compost heap. They really dig it. They think that it does great stuff. And Ariana Huffington has gone on to do all these amazing things, darling. And this is what he writes, and he knows that he's writing it. I don't know what Tucker's mindset was, or I can't be in Tucker's head, but I got to assume he was thinking... Well, of course, he didn't know that he's citing Lyndon LaRouche as the source, right? This is... Oh, no, he does. That's how much they hate Trump. They will find... They will do anything. They will find anything. Well, if you're going to use sources like Lyndon LaRouche, people are going to start calling you fake news. More coming. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to The Hut. We're joined by our friend Andy McCarthy. He's a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He is a best-selling author and a contributing editor at National Review. He's at Andrew C. McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, great to have you. Thank you for joining us today. Buck, my pleasure. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Uh, let's talk about some of these terrorist pardons, treasonous uh, treason pardons, all the rest of it that's happening. First, Obama spoke yesterday about the Chelsea Manning commutation. Here's what he had to say, and then I'm going to get your reaction, Andy. 
Do we have the audio? Chelsea Manning has served a tough prison sentence. Uh, so the notion that uh, the average person who was thinking about disclosing uh, vital classified information would think that it goes unpunished, uh, uh, I don't think would get that impression from the sentence uh, that Chelsea Manning has served. Uh, it has been my view that given she went to trial, that due process uh, was carried out, that she took responsibility for her crime, that all right, we'll stop the, there, Andy. Others will be here all day. Obama taking plenty of time with his words there, but you, you, you get the gist. What do you think of this? I, I thought uh, at one point I thought his uh, statement was going to be longer than the, the term she served. Um, yeah. But, I, I you know, I, I must tell you that um, seven years on a serious offense is very unusual in federal court. I've had, you know, fraud cases even lower-level organized crime cases where a much more severe sentence was issued. Uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, Bradley Manning, committed the, the kind of an offense that uh, not long ago you would have been executed for. Um, and 35 years was a highly reasonable sentence. Uh, I, I'd say a lenient sentence under the circumstances. To get an 80% shave off it, is just mind-boggling what it says to uh, other countries that we need to get uh, security cooperation from, Buck, because as, as you know better than I do, there's a lot of places in the world where our intelligence that we generate is sparse, and we rely on a lot of these uh, foreign intelligence services for information in places where the threat to the United States is profound. Um, between trying to get those countries to cooperate with us and trying to convince uh, potential informants and intelligence sources that we can protect the confidentiality of the things they tell us and then have a person who did, this person did, get slapped on the wrist. Uh, I, I, I just think it's a catastrophe for, uh, for national security. I mean, it creates uh, such incentives against cooperating with the United States uh, that it's mind-boggling to me. And the sense I got from Obama was that he bought into some of the rhetoric on the left when he said that she served a tough sentence. Um, what I took him to mean was not that seven years was tough, but that seven years' time for somebody who was transgender uh, in the kind of brig where the time has to be served was tougher on Manning than it would be on the normal defendant. And, you know, we can, we can feel for somebody who's, who's clearly got, you know, some problems and at the same time say that our paramount concern has to be the national security of the United States. And if that's the prism you're looking at it through, what he did was just intolerable. I have to say, it's also, and Andy, I don't want to make you talk about something that you're not really interested in or not comfortable getting into on air, but to hear the President of the United States refer to a, a man as she repeatedly 
I, I know this is kind of a it's a diversion, except for the fact that I do think that's where some of the leanings, the transgender aspect of this uh, factored very heavily into President Obama's thinking. Uh, but I also I, think I really it's very think, strange that. Yeah, I, I, Buck, I, look, I think you're entirely right. Um, I think that it's another one of these things where it's, uh, you know, political correctness run amok so that those of us who think that what what uh, Manning has is a psychological issue um, are sort of brushed back from saying so. But I must say, you know, as a prosecutor, uh, I heard many uh, kinds of pleas in uh, at the sentencing phase that somebody had this or that condition uh, or was uh, of this or that age that made it inappropriate for that person to be uh, expected to do the same kind of sentence that everybody else who was similarly situated in terms of the seriousness of the offense would be expected to do. And the sentencing guidelines and most federal judges and certainly most prosecutors would tell you that that is not a valid reason to to vary in a significant way from a, a severe sentence from for severe conduct. Um, I am not I would not be agreeable to shaving a day off Manning's sentence uh, because uh, his or her or whatever uh, characteristics and eccentricities make the time in prison more difficult than it would for the average defendant. I think that the paramount concern, again, is the national security of the United States. I'm not unsympathetic to what the psychological issues may be here, but I, I just think they're a sideshow compared to what we're supposed to be interested in here. I mean, can't you get 20 years under uh, Dodd-Frank, I think it is, in federal prison for destruction of documents in a financial fraud case? I mean, the, people forget, you know this better than than 99.999% of the population because you were a federal prosecutor. But, I mean, if the, if the federal government, if the, if the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, comes after you, 10 years is like what's going to happen if you're guilty. <laughs> That's pretty standard. Who was the guy? Who was it? Who was the guy? Was it Bernie Ebers um, in one of the big financial scandals of the uh, uh, of the 90s? But, you know, he got I saw in our courthouse in Manhattan, he got a sentence and it was only because the judge did some manipulating under the sentencing guidelines that she actually got the sentence down to something around 30 years. And I walked out of the courtroom thinking, Man, this this guy just got about thirty years in jail for a fraud he couldn't even explain to you, and that was just because uh, at that moment in time, politically, I think Washington felt like they needed to be able to show that they could be just as hard nosed on you know white collar financial fraud as they are on uh, narcotics trafficking, which tends on a on a greater scale to rope in um, uh, African American and Latino defendants. So, you know, no matter. Yeah, no got to lock how, away those white collar criminals for decades. I, I well, know that impulse. Yeah, it, it plays you know, well in the Democratic true. Party. But, you know, four, four years for Bernie Carrick for I think it was lying. Actually, I actually know people that were involved in his defense or know someone who was involved in his defense. Uh, it was lying on a White House form about whether he had embarrassed the White House or something like that. And right. Uh, right. And, and $170,000 on renovations for a house or I mean, four years in federal prison for that. Right. And in the meantime, Lynn Stewart, I think, got 23 months uh, for material support to terrorism and a, a sentence that was so appalling, even the Court of Appeals sent it back to the judge to uh, 
you know, to resentence her. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of politics, unfortunately, that goes not necessarily into the way that uh, things are handled case by case, but in the way that categories of defendant are handled. And and look, the reason for the pardon power is that, you know, for better or worse, we want the president to be able to correct injustice. And we and any of us who's worked in the justice system knows that injustice, uh, while it's it's less frequent than um, than you'd believe sometimes reading the newspapers, it certainly does happen. And it's a good power to have if it's used responsibly to correct excesses. But here, I think it created an outrage. Now, I also want you to talk about this, and you wrote about it on National Review, and it's on the corner at National Review, 11th Hour Terrorist Pardons by our friend here, Andrew McCarthy. You have personal experience in cases that have been touched by pardons. Tell us a bit about uh, what you what you write here about the case of the weather underground terrorist Susan Rosenberg and Linda Sue Evans. Yes, well, I... Um... I happened before I left the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, I caught the uh, the Susan Rosenberg case. It had not been my case uh, way back when. She was uh, implicated in the Brinks robbery and a, a lot of the other uh, uh, shenanigans that went on uh, with the Weather Underground in the uh, '70s and the early '80s. And to make a long story short, she was trying to get her um, uh, some conduct connected to the Brinks robbery discounted so that uh, she could go back to the parole back when we still had federal parole uh, and argue that she should be let out, even though she had gotten, uh, you know, I think it was over a 60 year sentence. So I had a um, I had a about a year and a half litigation um, with her to try to keep her in jail. And finally, uh, in I guess it was late 2000. Uh, persuaded the judge to keep her in, that the sentence couldn't be disturbed. Uh, and it was a few weeks after that, uh, if if my memory's right, that uh, Clinton, on his last day, one of his last official acts, uh, pardoned both Rosenberg and uh, Linda Sue Evans, who was another Weather Underground uh, person who was looking for uh, clemency. A lot of that got buried, Buck, because the, the Mark Rich pardon uh, the facts of it were so grotesque uh, that people kind of seized on that. And I think the weather underground pardons went under the radar. But the fact of the matter is, for some reason, the left has an infatuation um, with anti-American radical uh, terrorists um, who, you know, even I even looked at uh, Susan Rosenberg's uh, page on Wikipedia yesterday and I think they describe her, if I'm remembering this right, they describe her as a, an activist and a, a, social, uh, a social justice advocate. Uh, you know, they don't, they don't want to say the T word um, because for whatever reason, uh, in progressive circles, these people are celebrated as if, you know, what's the old saying? They're, they're just liberals in a hurry, you know, but they were terrorists and they did a lot of damage. Andy McCarthy is a former uh, former AUSA here for the Southern District of New York. He's a best-selling author. Also read his latest on National Review, nationalreview.com. Andy, thank you very much for lending your expertise to us today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Buck. 
888-900-3393, team. Uh, before I hit the phones, sponsor this hour is silencershop.com. The best place to go to get a silencer, as you know, if you listen to the show, is in fact silencershop.com. They have the best prices, the best service, and a fantastic selection. And when it comes to making sure that all the paperwork gets done right for your silencer, that all the T's are crossed and all the I's are dotted, you can trust silencershop.com because they have submitted more than 60,000 forms to the ATF and for the last year that we have total data. Silencer Shop offers the best prices along with the best service. And when you purchase from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees, no shipping. Silencershop.com is the place to go. Again, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. And team, we will be right back. Buck Sexton. Dispensing the truth. On the Blaze Radio Network. Dispensing the truth. This is Buck Sexton. On the Blaze Radio Network. Of course, there was the Oscar Lopez Rivera uh, commutation that happened yesterday as well. I talked to you about that. But we often have guests on from The Federalist. Thefederalist.com is the website. Ben Dominich and Sean Davis are the co-founders of it. Uh, Sean joins us a lot. Ben's joined us certainly a few times in the past. Ben and Richard Fowler, who is a radio talk show host, not making us radio talk show hosts look good with his lack of accuracy last night uh, when he said that Scooter Libby was convicted for leaking Valerie Plame's name. That is a lie. This is not this is not debatable. There are court documents that very clearly show that Scooter Libby was found guilty of obstruction and lying to investigators. He was never found guilty of leaking anyone's name to anybody. That is just a fact. That is unalterable. That is the reality. It is the court record that came later in the exchange. But first, let's just hear the two sides. We've got uh, this uh, Richard Fowler, the radio host on the left. This is the left's position, I think, encapsulated. Play what he has to say. Publisher of The Federalist and Richard Fowler. He is New Leaders Council Senior Fellow and Fox News contributor. Welcome, gentlemen. Uh, good to have you both here. So Welcome it's been to Washington. A couple of days. Thank you. It's great to be here, Richard. And nice to be on the set with you. You're good usually in a little you. box and you're always much taller than I think you are in person. Um, what do you think about all this? Oh, I got to tell you, I thought about this one really hard. And I think as a president goes out making, you know, doing these last minute pardons and commutations are a hard thing to do. And when I thought about the Oscar Lopez case, I understand why a lot of people in America are furious by it. But I thought back to our founders and the, the Boston Tea Party, right, which was the British, the, the, British, the British government at the time thought was a terrorist act because we were fighting for the same type of freedom that he was fighting for the people of Puerto Rico. And so I, I don't know if I would have made the same decision when I'm not the president of the United States, but I understand why the president, president did it. And I think it's in line with what our founders fought for. This guy who was part of a group that would plant bombs in restaurants to kill people for independence for an island that does not want it and that had no prayer of getting it by killing a few people here and there, murdering mothers and fathers, husbands, daughters, uh, in line with the founding. One of the dumbest things I've ever heard said on cable news. 
but the left says this about anyone who is we say is a terrorist. Any of this, oh, the founding fathers were terrorists because they're just imbeciles who don't know anything about history. Our friend Ben Dominich, the Federalist, with the response. Let's hear it from Fox last night. Ben? First hundred days. Well, my family is Puerto Rican, Martha. This is very important to me. Um, my family lived there when America won uh, Puerto Rico in the Spanish-American War. Uh, my family has lived and been active there in the politics there for uh, the decades since. And I care deeply about this. Oscar Lopez Rivera is nothing more than a terrorist. But worse, he's an unrepentant terrorist. Simple fact is that he has never repented. He has never backed off. He has never uh, pushed back on any of the tactics that he used at the time or publicly denounced or regretted them. Your colleague there, Trace, reported, as some reports had it, that, that Rivera was unwilling to sign on to the conditional clemency that President Clinton was willing to grant him that was rejected by the Senate 95 to 2 in 1999 because his fellow colleagues were being, would be in prison. But the New York Times reported at the time that the real reason was that the conditional clemency would have required him to give up the use of force and terrorism as we a justifiable approach to right. his cause. The fact is there is an independentista movement in Puerto Rico. There has been for a very long time. They've been active uh, and they've engaged in a lot of criminal activity that has result, resulted in the deaths of many of their fellow Americans. I think it is unconscionable that President Obama should exit enabling someone who is an unrepentant terrorist who has never apologized for his actions to the victims of the people, to the victims he enabled to help uh, kill, oh. the, to the people, to the so people ben, who he helped train. That John to, Adams is a unapologetic Do you dare terrorist? to compare Oscar Lopez Rivera, <laughs> a socialist Moore. who went Wait, mad? Pause it for or, one second. Pause it for one second. So I just want to know, can someone ask Richard Fowler, um, does he compare Osama bin Laden to John Adams? Does he compare Osama bin Laden to George Washington? I'd like someone to ask this this radio host and, and apparent Fox News contributor if he would make that claim. I don't see what the difference is. Let Ben continue to, to pummel the nonsense. Go, please. After living for years in Chicago, working or as ben a community... Or Franklin, who's, who oh, yes. the same Oh, yes, activity. Oscar Lopez Rivera, so, who trained, the, so who trained hundreds of people so ben, to make what was bombs the, what was in order Boston, to kill their was, fellow Americans. What was the Boston Tea there Party? There are ways... There are what ways, was the Boston Tea Party? You, you compare the heroes of the Boston Tea Party to Oscar I, Lopez I think Rivera, the, I think a socialist who was working on behalf of a communist plot to try to spread socialism throughout the Caribbean. I take, I, I take your point. Um, All right. I'm with, I'm, look, I'm with, I'm with Ben Dominich, the Federalist, 100% on this one. It, it, there is that level you can reach in a cable news debate where what's been said is so stupid that it almost, it, it's like you're just getting slimed from above. You're like, how do I, what, wait, what? It's so out there and dumb, and you know you're not going to have enough time to, dis to dismantle it, and you get fired up because it's so wrong. Anyway, good job, Ben. More coming. We'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. I've got an idea. How about we get into some spy time? Play it. Agent, you are joining a clandestine meeting in progress. You will now be read into sensitive programs in real time. Do not communicate this information with any other assets in the field. This is spy time. 
Oh, yeah. John Schindler's with us now. Observer.com for his latest piece, Spy Clouds Hang Over Trump's Inauguration, formerly of the NSA, currently National Security Writer for the New York Observer. Mr. Schindler, good to have you, sir. It's great to be here as always, Buck. All right. Spy Clouds Hang Over Trump's Inauguration. Walk us through this right now. The dossier looks fake, but there's some other concerns. But just give us the, the latest on what you've been able to uncover from your sources and everything you pulled together on that Trump dossier. Is that some fake, but you think that some people may think there's something still there? Yeah, the uh, dossier, which BuzzFeed leaked last week, is, is uh, you know, it's raw human intelligence. It's, some, it's a lot of gossip. I think some of it's true. I think some of it's clearly untrue. And some of it is somewhere in between. And I think the concern there is the Russians may be peddling disinformation, that is, lies surrounded by some truth to confuse people. Uh, and this has now been upped because yesterday uh, we had a new report from McClatchy that the intelligence community, in fact, has had a five-agency working group looking at Trump's Russian ties since the spring. So in this case, the dossier, which was compiled by Chris Steele, formerly of British intelligence, well-regarded intelligence officer, really um, didn't tell the R spies anything they didn't know when he started sharing it with them last summer. And I, I would go so far as to say that the Steele dossier, which has generated this enormous amount of coverage, a lot of it negative, obviously, because of BuzzFeed leaking it, um, actually is kind of a cover mechanism for our spies to conduct the real investigation, which they've been doing now for the better part of a year. So I, I, I think you can judge this by the fact that the, this McClatchy story, uh, which I can independently confirm a lot of it by, I've heard similar things for quite a while now, hit the streets about 24 hours ago, and the president-elect, who's just arriving in D.C. now, has not tweeted a single thing about it which tells me a lot, since he likes to go on Twitter and mock the intelligence community and call it fake news and liars and compare our spies to Nazis on Twitter. Not a peep, which tells me... Who do you think... Wait, wait, but let me... John, uh, who do you think told... Uh, I want to know your your sense of this one. Uh, who who told the media that the dossier was included in that intel, in that intel briefing? Do you think that came... Um, what would you say is the most likely source of that? I think actually someone uh, close to the current outgoing White House uh, leaked that information, um, and, and and you know the, the dossier. And we can agree that that's a political shot, right? I mean, that's that is oh, what sure. that is. Welcome to D.C. Welcome to D.C. Yeah. I mean, this is how the game gets played, and the, the Trump folks tomorrow are going to be able to play it, you know, the way they want to because they're going to have the White House and indirectly all of our security agencies. This is you know welcome to to life inside the Beltway. Unfortunately, it's been this way a long time. Uh, and now, politics, but t- tell everybody, the McClatchy report yeah. has gotten very little play. I'm not seeing you know, the, the furor over the 35-page yeah. dossier. Dossier is like a word of the year now. The furor over that right. whole thing was was everywhere, all over the news, all over the media. Uh, this McClatchy report that you mentioned, uh, so far, other than, uh, honestly, John, I didn't know about it until I read your piece. So crickets on this one. What does well, it say? Yeah, crickets. Well, I, okay, let's be honest. The dossier which BuzzFeed leaked was fun and salacious and golden showers and allegations of prostitutes, and that gets, that gets social media going insane. Uh, talking about a judicious, careful, multi-agency intelligence inquiry into possible illicit Russian funding of the Trump campaign just isn't sexy. This is where, where you need accountants, not, not really 007, to get to the bottom of this. So I, I think just the reality is the McClatchy piece was carefully reported, stuck close to what multiple sources had leaked to them, and wasn't trying to be sensationalistic. Therefore, it really hasn't created the stir that you would think it would. And I hope my, my piece gets people to look and see that, no, there actually is something important here. And I also highlight the fact 
that it's not just U.S. intelligence that the president-elect needs to be concerned about. A lot of our allies have pieces of Trump's story, whatever that is, to his ties to the Russians that go back years. Um, and they're going to keep leaking this, too. I mean, Trump is going to try and shut down an intelligence community investigation of himself. Obviously, that's again, that's just politics in D.C., but he can't shut down our foreign partners, and he also can't shut down the Senate. The Senate Intelligence Committee is going to have their own investigation with subpoena power into possible Russian ties to our election in 2016. And the, the president-elect cannot tell Congress what to do on that. Now, the notion of Russian money in the Trump campaign, you mentioned this in the piece. Why That, that to me just seems like such a huge risk for so little reward for the— the Trump can and I know the Trump right. world in terms of politics, everything is is different, right? I mean, all all the Absolutely. things we thought we knew were not true in, <laughs> in terms of what was necessary for a campaign. The ground game, right. he was disqualified yeah. fifteen times over by things he said. Actually, no, he wasn't. So I understand that there's a a funhouse mirror effect going on with everything with the Trump campaign specifically, but taking Russian money. Do you think that they didn't know they were taking Russian money? I mean, what would be the what would be the rationale behind that? Well, I think the rationale is the, the, the Trump organization, I mean, they've admitted this, has been taking money from Russian sources for years, not all of them entirely legitimate, it would seem. Uh, so if they were just putting a little more money into that pod, into that little kitty, that might not have seemed all that abnormal. And, you know, who knows what the Trump people were aware of even. I mean, this is where there's a lot about the story we don't know. Um, to, to what extent was was Trump witting of pop Russian money, or were, were his were the people in his inner circle aware of what was going on? We simply don't know, and this is what the Senate's going to have to ask. Because I agree with you, that seems to be an extraordinarily risky thing to do, even for Trump, even on Trump on planet Trump, where everything kind of goes and consequences seem for other people. But that it's a shocking story if this is a case of where. Russian, the Russian government or people acting on behalf of the Russian government were in effect laundering money to give to the Trump campaign. That, if true, is really, really shocking stuff. And the Senate's going to need to find out if that's true or not. What do you make of the, the newfound uh, Democrat bellicosity when it comes to all things Russia? Yeah, uh, they carved yeah. up. They carved up a piece off of Crimea. They carved up Crimea. Uh, they they were involved in a in a not-so-covert, covert war in eastern Ukraine. They've been annihilating civilians, including in Aleppo, in Syria, from the air, as well as putting Spetsnaz on the ground and doing God knows what. All of that has been happening. They've been intervening in European politics and have real leverage. And, you know, it gets really cold in Germany in the winter, and they get 30% of their natural gas from Russia. So there's a lot of connectivity there as well, as you well know, John. But now all of a sudden it's a big deal and they want to handle it. It, it does seem that that doesn't mean that they're wrong and that there's a problem, but it does seem like this is very new from the left. It's very new. And I think they need to be careful because as concerned as I am about our soon to be president's ties to the Kremlin, um, the, they're making allegations which cannot be substantiated. I mentioned this in my piece. Uh, Newsweek a few days ago reported care of Kurt Eichenwald sort of liberal icon uh, reporter. He has gone off the, like, off the rails a little bit recently, not to interrupt you, John. Really he's really gone off, off the deep end on this one. And he's claiming to have you know, knowledge that the Estonians spied on a meeting in Prague between Trump representatives and Russian intelligence. There's one problem. There's no evidence that meeting happened. The FBI looked into it. 
They couldn't prove it. There's no evidence the Estonians did this. This is just rumor-mongering. Uh, I agree it's important, it's true, but that's a very serious accusation to make if you're not sure the story is true. And the, the left is going to destroy themselves on this. They have a lot to work with. There really are shady Trump ties to the Kremlin, but they're going too far. They're accepting things on with little, if any, evidence, and they're going to undermine their own arguments. And I think that's unfortunate because the public does have a right to know what the real story is, and I want the Senate to do due diligence and find out in a – to the extent that it can be nonpartisan, find out what's really going on here. I think it's a big national security story. But the left is going bonkers on this, and they really need to calm down because they're, they're, they're blowing up a story that needs to be treated seriously. And that's what I'm Yeah, I mean, the BuzzFeed do. dossier, by, I, that undermined BuzzFeed. I also think the intelligence Absolutely. community's inclusion of that document in any context, in any briefing, looked really bad. John, you and I both used to see what oh, yeah. would go into that book on a regular basis. And, and there was no oh, sketchy, yeah. can't say who this is, don't know where it came from. But hey, president, this is saying that there's somebody you're paying people to pee right. on you. I mean, that's what they did. That's pretty crazy. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. And to be fair, we don't know how it was hedged. I mean, we don't know, was this put out there as hey, this could be true. Hey, this could be Russian disinformation. So, you know, we don't really know what this is. If it was done that way, that's one thing. But I agree, BuzzFeed leaking it like that was really irresponsible and shady because this had been in the hands of numerous media organizations for months, and none of them reported it because they couldn't substantiate the more important claims. Good, John, I could talk really to you about this for hours, but we only got time really for one more thing. And I, yeah. I wanted you to explain to me because you're looking at this from the from the perspective of a of a, a Russia expert as well as an intelligence expert, and I know you're breaking it down based on each bit of new information as it comes in. But at a at a at a macro view, the the idea of Donald Trump, or rather the idea of the Kremlin having real leverage, of Vladimir Putin having real leverage over Donald Trump, absent some horrific video that they said existed in the dossier, which I, I don't think that video exists, but regardless, right. let's say that doesn't exist. Donald Trump is, is going to be president. Everybody's worried, including many of his base supporters that I know, that he's just going to throw yeah. out a lot of stuff that he said he was going to do. Essentially, can't be trusted, right. changes his mind all the time. That's even some Trumpers that I know think that. Why would Vladimir Putin think that he's able to uh, direct and corral and own this guy? You know what I mean? That, that's the part, that's part yeah. of this that doesn't add up to me. So I wanted to give that to you. I think we need to accept the fact that the Russians are cagier than that and probably understand Trump, you know, as well as anyone and understand that he's, you know, extremely fickle to use a, a, a nice word and changes his mind constantly. And the Russians, I don't think the Russians think they own him in any literal sense. I, I think he's an agent of chaos in the American political system for the Russians and that he has certainly achieved and will continue to achieve. I think if the Russians think Trump by himself is going to switch American positions on a host of issues to pro-Russian orientation, that's a very naive take on how American politics works, how Washington works. He can't do that. He can do a little bit of it, but he needs Congress. He needs his own party to do this. And he's just not going to get a lot of traction there, frankly. But what Trump can do is make a complete hash of things and gum up our national security structures, damage our intelligence agencies, and make things in, in D.C. not that functional to start with, coming off eight years of Obama, even worse. And if that's what the Russians expect of him, I think Trump can definitely do that. But that may be but that may be absent any Russian interference or, or Russian coercion. Right. I mean, I think that's in a sense that essentially Possibly, what yeah. you're saying, the Russians yeah. hope he will do. He may do regardless of whether oh, there's no. any real pressure from Russia. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and my concern is not so much about soon to be President Trump as about some of the people around him 
um, who really do have really quite deep Kremlin ties that uh, far beyond what Trump himself. Is. I, I've had to say before uh, on the show that the fact that that somebody of the stature in terms of his resume of Jenna Flynn went on RT when little GS nobody buck in his first couple of years in media was like RT. I'm not going on that friggin' channel. You got to be crazy. No, of course not. That's a problem. Right. And that, he, that is a problem for like me. Flynn, if if I knew it, he should have known it too. And he did know it, and that is the problem. Uh, and Flynn is going to do is going to create a lot of chaos in our national security structures uh, from his perch in the White House. And I think. Um, you know, we need to be very concerned about this. The potential to do damage is very real, and uh, that doesn't mean Russia's telling them to do this, but Russia can be a real beneficiary of that. And it's a dangerous world, and it's not going to get any safer with American national security in disarray. Spy Clouds Hangover Trump's inauguration is the piece. It's on Observer.com right now. At 20 Committee on Twitter is our man John Schindler. Follow him. John, thanks for joining. Talk to you soon. Pleasure always. Team, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Only. On the Blaze Radio Network. You know that the, uh, I think it was Black Lives Matter protesters disturbed a brunch that is uh, in an area of the city where I spend a fair amount of time. People can't have brunch without protesters coming in, making a racket, yelling, because you know, you're not allowed to enjoy your time off. Uh, no matter what's going on in your life, it doesn't matter. They're angry protesters. They want to force you to think about what they want you to think about it. But now we have people who have showed up at the Trump International Hotel and Tower to protest Obamacare. They all show up. Here, play, play the clip. This is what they do now at a, at a crowded restaurant. I mean, what, what a bunch of babies. What do they think this is going to accomplish? Oh, yeah, sure. I talk about it here, but I talk about it to mock them. Do they think that anyone in that restaurant is going to say, wow, these uh, look like a bunch of grad students that haven't had a real job in their lives. They're all showing up and they're coughing because they like Obamacare. And now when they cough, they won't have Obamacare. So (sighs) Obamacare is terrible. I know people who have it. It is not good. And you don't even have the freedom to buy a plan that would be good at a level that is catastrophic in terms of health. Right. So what I'm saying here is you can't just buy a plan that's like, look, I'm going to cover my own health expenses up to seven thousand dollars, period. Above seven thousand dollars, I want an 80 20 split with the insurance company. That could be a plan. I mean, these are. But no, what you have right now is you got to spend seven or ten grand out of pocket. And maybe there's some provisos that let you see a doctor for preventative care or whatever but really most of us go to the doctor when we're sick okay all this preventative health care stuff generally speaking is not taken advantage of and then beyond that you have a really narrow doctor network you got doctors that don't want to take you don't want to take your obamacare and so you then you end up going out of pocket anyway it's just, it's not what they pretend that it is and this has just all become embroiled in the virtue signaling crap of the left and it makes me mad
Hour three coming up, team. 888-900-3393 on those phones. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome to our three today in the Freedom Hut. We're joined by Joel Pollack. He is Breitbart News Senior Editor at Large. He's got a new book out that he co-authored with Larry Schweiker called How Trump Won, The Inside Story of a Revolution. Joel, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be with you. All right. Tell us about the book. You were covering it. You were behind the scenes. You saw it. The media was even worse to Trump than we thought. I don't even know how that's possible. Right. Well, actually, as, as I speak to you here today, I'm in the Trump Hotel in Washington, D.C. You can probably hear the commotion behind me. And we have uh, the inauguration happening here in D.C. tomorrow. And lots of, lots of pandemonium here as the Trump fans get ready to celebrate. And uh, sort of the spirit of the campaign has carried over into the celebration as people face off against protesters and fight through roadblocks to get to the man they want to see elected and inaugurated now as 45th president of the United States. Uh, before we get into the campaign and the behind the scenes that you saw that you, you uh, detail in your book, I just want to ask you, are you seeing protesters lying in streets or lining up to do so? Any, any other sort of... Uh, leftist uh, shenanigans that we were told might happen? Do you, is it going to happen? Are you seeing any of that stuff? <laughs> well, nothing violent, you know, nothing, no, nothing that we feared would happen yet. But I have seen my first protesters. Uh, I was on the metro train underground just now with uh, a couple of women who were from out of town. They were protesting. And one of them was wearing a fur coat. And, and I thought might, maybe it was fake fur. You know, I didn't want to judge her too harshly because, of course, uh, you know, they don't believe in fur or using animals. Right. Or, you weren't going to throw red paint at her and say animals have feels, right. too. I get it. Right. So I asked her, is that real? And she said kind of sheepishly, yes, it is. <laughs> and uh, I, I kind of looked at her funny and she said, well, I'm from Chicago. And, you know, I grew up in Chicago, too. Um, you know, being on the left apparently is enough to uh, absolve you of whatever sins you might be committing. Um, I've got to try that with I grew up in New York. Next time somebody gets mad at me for voting for Trump, I'll be like, but I grew up in New York. Anyway, go ahead, Joel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean? But uh, anyway, so um, that's that that's just another little vignette from the campaign trail. And and there's so many stories of, of, of hypocrisy to the left. I mean, that's really a, kind of a mild version. But um, yeah, I mean, it's exciting. I'm speaking to you here from the lobby now of the hotel. Um, all kinds of people going back and forth. I saw Kellyanne Conway just here a moment ago. Um, there are people waiting, lining up to get their inauguration tickets and and just kind of an air of excitement. And you know, all these people boycotting the election or sorry, the inauguration, uh, these these 65 or so Democrats and the Hollywood people who stayed away. I mean, I think it's great because it means it's more for the rest of us to enjoy. Uh, I'll be covering it for Breitbart, but also just kind of taking in the scene around D.C. and 
if you know Washington, D.C., it's a difficult city to get around. But Pennsylvania Avenue is totally blocked off right now and, and really quite a nice stroll. Um, really, really peaceful in preparation for the parade. And so, um, you know, it, it's really, I think, a fresh start for democracy tomorrow. Uh, this was an election nobody could have predicted. My, my co-author on How Trump Won, Larry Schweikart, was one of the few who did predict it. So uh, kudos to him. I'm, if you read the book, you'll find that when you come to my parts of the book, I'm very skeptical about Trump's chances. Never wrote him off and always thought that he was the one Republican who might be Hillary Clinton. But I still gave him a slim chance to do so. Whereas Larry was looking at different data. Larry, of course, brings his historical perspective to the book. And so he has a better sense, perhaps, of what's possible. And, you know, when you talk about American history, this is a guy who's written about presidents. This is the guy who wrote the Patriots history of the United States. So he probably had Andrew Jackson in mind, or at least in the back of his mind, when he looked at this election, because that's what this was. This was the biggest populist upset since 1828. And Rudy Giuliani came out on election night to the press. Uh, the perspective I give you in the book, in my parts of the book, is that of a reporter on the trail, on the plane, following Trump around, going from rally to rally, talking to his supporters, asking him why they were there, and talking to protesters, people who didn't like him, asking all of that. And, and it was just a fantastic journalistic experience to be right there with a the front seat at the greatest political event, certainly of my lifetime, the greatest upset perhaps in American history. Uh, real exciting moment. And I think some more exciting moments are to come. Some people had a little too much excitement, but I think that we need to uh, just take a moment and observe how remarkable it is that American democracy continues to have this ability to renew itself. And I, I hope people will enjoy the book and, and, and take that sense from my story of the election and Larry's story, um, which is which is the lesson I carry with me today. Joel, can you give us uh, maybe one or two instances or details, uh, anything you, you have in the book? I see here that uh, in the description, and, and it's, again, How Trump Won, the inside story of a revolution, uh, that you expose the, quote, shocking behind-the-scenes behavior of the story-manipulating press while on the frenetic closing weeks of Trump's campaign trail, end quote. Uh, I was at CNN, so I have my own stories that I could share with you. I and mean, I was there as a commentator, okay. not as a reporter. Uh, but I saw all kinds of stuff going on, in, on camera and off. What are some of the things you talk about in the book that you saw on the campaign trail? Well, one of the episodes I describe is one where we were at a speech in Toledo, Ohio, and he was talking about the problems of black communities in the inner city that he wanted to help solve. And he used the word ghetto to describe those neighborhoods. Now, that's a pretty common usage. It used to be even more common, um, less so now, but you can find very recent examples of people, of black intellectuals like Thomas Sowell using that language. And the media went bananas over it. And I wrote about their reaction. They, they thought it was some kind of a dog whistle either to, you know, the racists out there or whatever anti-Semites were lurking in the corners of their imaginations. And, and they made a huge deal out of it, and I wrote about that. And, and one of the leading journalists on the press corps uh, got very upset with me, and they almost, he said, threw me off the plane. He said, we had a debate about whether to do that. I, you know, and I can't go into the details of our discussion because that, too, was off the record. But, you know, it just shocked me that there was this kind of shared idea in the press about what Trump was and what he wasn't. And it, to me, to my mind, it was completely wrong. Um, so so they thought question. the ghetto was a, a racist, a racist dog whistle about African-Americans. Do they just not know the origins of the term or, or do they not care? No, they knew that. I, I don't know. It just they all thought it was something that had to be reacted to. That's something that was newsworthy and that, you know, 
that, that demonstrated some vulnerability on the part of the candidate. And I just I heard the same speech they did. And I thought this is this is just strange. Um, and to watch um, certainly on Twitter again, I can't, I can't talk about what people said on the bus and the van. I, I really do want to stay on the right side of that off the record rule. Although I think they've really taken it to an absurd length. If you read other campaign memoirs by journalists, if you look at David Halberstam writing about Robert Kennedy in the 1960s, you'll find that the plenty of tales from the trail make it into the book. But, you know, there was enough on Twitter from journalists watching on television to, to let you know this was kind of a hive mind reaction. This was groupthink at, at the highest level. And, and it was just stunning to see it in, in, in person unfolding like that. I've got a few stories like that as well, where the stories reported in the press bore almost no resemblance to what happened inside a Trump rally. Did you, uh, were you, where were you the night that he won, by the way? I was at the victory party, and it was, it was pretty amazing because it started out like a funeral. I mean, we got there at 7.30, and people were thinking he was going to lose. And then the Florida panhandle came in, and things started to look very different. And so it was transformed. It was almost like the entire campaign in microcosm, from, from no chance of winning to a 99% chance of winning in a very short period of time and in a very dramatic fashion. So that it, was, it was a night to remember, I can tell you that much. Was there any, was there a moment, what was your moment where you said, uh, you know, oh my, this is actually going to happen? Well, it was the panhandle results. I mean, for me, it was that plus the New York Times going from he has like a 40% chance of winning to a 90% chance of winning. That happened in about an hour. Yeah, he's, uh, I can remember each of those points, but for me, I knew that it wasn't going to be over until he won one of those blue states because I, in my mind, I had a little electoral map that I, that I was following along and, I knew that he was probably going to lose Nevada, that New Hampshire was going to be a very close thing, and that the only way to guarantee a win would be to win one of those blue states. And I also knew that that had been his strategy, and we had spent a lot of time in those blue states. You know, normally campaigns would work swing states and try to persuade the moderate voters in swing states to come over. Trump took a very different approach. He spent time in the swing states, but he also went behind enemy lines, so to speak, and went to the blue states and spoke directly to Democrat voters about why they should vote for him. And that was a strategy. They knew that they had such a huge disadvantage in the Electoral College because of New York, California, Illinois going to the Democrats that they had to get behind that blue wall. And I knew they had to lose at least one state uh, or had to steal at least one state from, from the Democrats. Um, and when they got Wisconsin, which was the one we least expected to come, uh, Larry tells in the book about how he expected them to win Michigan and Pennsylvania. But Wisconsin was the one state he didn't predict. And the margin there was, was staggering also. And for him to win Wisconsin that way, that's when I knew it was over. But that was pretty late in the game. I mean, people were already celebrating, and I was just keeping, you know, poker face because I, I, I knew that those New York Times numbers would swing back the other way as Hillary Clinton picked up a couple extra states. It's one of my one of my regrets because I think I could have just gone over. I, I found out later that people didn't need an engraved invitation necessarily, was that I wasn't far away in New York City from the Clinton headquarters uh, where they were already popping the champagne literally according to some accounts right uh, about how hillary was going to win i just would have wanted to be there not to marinate in their agony or anything but just to have been for historical purposes to have seen that because i know they all thought that they were they were expecting to have an awesome party and that's sure were. it's like it's like a party where you know as soon as the kegs are rolled out uh the cops show up the lights go on and uh, people are getting arrested (laughs) that's that's not the party you want to be at um, but uh, well, Joel, are you, are you going to be enjoying some Three Doors Down and Toby Keith, or are you just going to be working while you're down there? Uh, hard at work, and then you know because inauguration's on a Friday, and I observe the Jewish Sabbath. I'm going to be at a special Sabbath dinner on Friday night in D.C. There's a couple of those going on instead of the inaugural balls, and I think it'll be a unique opportunity to observe the inauguration in in a special way. 
so I'm, I'm looking forward to the weekend and, and then heading back to California to be with family and, uh, and, and get this coverage, a new administration. Absolutely. Well, uh, Joel Pollack is Breitbart News Senior Editor-at-Large. He is the author, along with Larry Schweigert, of How Trump Won, the Inside Story of a Revolution. Joel, we appreciate you joining us. Have a, uh, a good and safe inauguration. Thank you very, very much. And uh, team, we'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network. The Buck Sexton Show. We got uh, Jim in Minnesota on the line. What's up, Jim? Hey, Buck. How you doing? Good, good. What's going on? Uh, I was wondering as far as uh, with Manning, as far as, uh, uh, you know, so that drives me crazy because, you know, as you know, I'm a retired Navy vet, and I had a, a secret clearance or top secret clearance, you know, but basically just basically on airplanes. You know, I worked on airplanes, and sometimes we had to look at the uh, – schematics and the you know different uh data about them and of course some of that was classified so uh but i was just wondering as far as uh do you think this is uh gonna change anything as far as uh, is this gonna be pushed even further into the transgender uh, as far as uh issues or do you think uh you know this will be kind of a uh people will just say that you know this is just outrageous and uh and you know, go and the transgender issue will be pushed back. No, I I think that we're entering a period now where where the the corporate culture and certainly academia already reflects this, but we're getting to the point where to call somebody who has been a a man for twenty five years of life who decides, or you know, thirty five years yeah. of life or whatever, that he believes he's a woman. And remember, it is a belief. It is not based in any gen- genetic or, or I shouldn't say genetic. It is not belie- um, based in any anatomical reality. Right. Because uh, genetics and psychology can be tied into each other, of course. But this is now going to be a thing where if you say that a person is a he when he says she's a she, it's not going to be, well, I have a different point of view on that. Mine is based in objective reality. It's going to be you're a bigot. You're violating uh, employment non-discrimination law, and you're in a lot of trouble. You know, I, I never advocate nor would I ever condone, and, and I would actively condemn anybody being mean to somebody or being unkind to somebody based upon any number of, of conditions. And you know, people who are transgender or are brothers and sisters just like everybody else, I do see this, though, turning into a you better bend the knee on this or else. Yep. And that's that's where this is going. I mean, the, the fact that the president, look, I was reading conservative sites that were saying she for Chelsea Manning. Oh, my God. What is this she? I know. And people will say, Buck, why do you care? Why can't you just use the pronoun that he wants you to? And it's because right. I, I don't I don't live in a in a reality right. where or rather yeah, I don't I live, live in a world where I can just say reality is something other than what it is. Right. You know, I have a and, lot of objections uh, to to go ahead, Jim. And also, I was wondering, too, as far as uh, uh, looking at this whole case, as far as what makes me sick about it the most, as far as his parents, they're basically encouraging this and their children. I mean, they got to be sick to do stuff like that. 
Yeah, it's it's very strange. I saw an article recently about a uh, a mother who wants to become a man and a son who wants to become a daughter. I think it was, uh, and you know, the, oh, so geez. it was it was a mother and son, and the son wants to be a woman, and the mother wants to be a man now. And this was being this oh. is being celebrated on the left. I don't. I mean, to to celebrate this is also very strange to me. I, look, there there are um, and and they are they are welcome and and they are valued listeners. But I, I know there are transgender individuals who listen to this show, and I'd be very open to and very curious to hear from one of them on some of these issues because the aggressive mm-hmm. left doesn't actually represent many of the groups that they purport to represent right. accurately. Meaning that, you know, and you saw this, by the way, with with even some very prominent members of the of the gay and and lesbian community when there was that firing of the Mozilla CEO because he supported whatever was prop aid in California back in 2008. They said, no, no, we, we, we shouldn't be engaged in retroactive witch hunts against people, especially when Barack Obama ran in 2008 on traditional marriage. And, and so now you're going to single people out and destroy them. I mean, that's just—I uh, mean, I, that's just wrong, man. I don't know how else, how else to put it. Um, I think with the with the yeah. transgender issue, you're going to see more and more of an effort to force people to speak about things in a certain way. And there will be—it won't be that you're just called a bigot or or ignorant. There will be actual consequences for you. You will be fired. You will be that uh, they will take sanctions against you, and the law will be on their side. This is all happening now. Yeah. They become a protected class. Look, uh, be nice to everybody. You can you, your name can be whatever you want. You can grow your hair however you want. You can dress however you want. But to tell me that I have yeah. to call someone who is anatomically male a female just because they want me to, you know, what if somebody walks around and they want me to call them a platypus? Do I have to do that? Yeah. I mean, that would be people say, "Oh, that'll never happen." Why will that never happen? Some people yeah. might think that's funny. Maybe they identify as something other than human. Maybe they think that they're actually an alien that's landed on Earth. I actually know of somebody who told somebody I know that they believed that about themselves. So I'm not even completely pulling that out of thin air. I know somebody who thought that he's part of an alien race. This is true. Uh, so hear, uh, I know of somebody. Now? So what's up? Did you hear now that the scouts are now, uh, you know, of course, they had accept gay, uh, you know, gay scouts, but now it's being pushed. They're pushing to get transgender scouts in there now. I just, you know, I, I don't even yeah, I know. I, I know what you this mean. This idea that we're going to get kids who are still figuring all this stuff right. out. Right. Uh, th- that we're going to start encouraging them to make, you know, what right. if you, do you really want to be a, a 25-year-old who lived a male who lived as a female for like ages 8 to 11 or 11 to 14 or something <laughs> this kind of, that's not good this is not good what I they're know, doing I to know. people yeah no. anyway Jim, oh, yeah, it, i hear you a, man a, uh, good, good to talk to you shields high um i look i saw even on not even just on the left wing sites they're all calling chelsea manning she I need a doctor to call in to tell me how we deal with the fa- somebody who takes who who is an MD who deals with gender reassignment surgery and explains to me what we make of the fact that you cannot take a person who is a male and make them into a female they can't they can't do that so I mean they can't even cure the common cold I know that's kind of a non sequitur but they definitely can't make a man into a woman can't do it so why would we start to say that a person who is male is now female? Unless I'm missing something. Maybe, maybe they've gotten so good at the surgery now that 
but I'm pretty sure that's not the case. I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll have to get a guest on. I know the guy from Johns Hopkins who said it wasn't the case knew more about it than anybody, and then he was chased out of the public square. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Sexton Show. All right, team, you will recall the nonstop media coverage of the flight MH370 that went missing, the Malaysia Airlines flight, uh, that still to this day we don't have answers. The search has been called off, and I wanted to bring on somebody to tell us what what the latest is on what they were able to find, figure out, and what we think really happened here, because this is a plane that just seemed to disappear out of thin air uh sal lagoni as an aviation attorney and an analyst on fox news who's been covering mh370 from day one he's also a pilot you can learn more about what he does at lagonialaw.com uh, sal thank you for calling in my pleasure all right mh370 uh, what ha- what what has changed now they're calling off the search what have they found and what did they not find well, after three years of covering this story, I feel like I own the airplane, for, for crying out loud, and I've never flown it. Um, but we, we've found so little, um, and I think we are at the point where we were probably my third day of covering this with Bill Hammer in, at Fox News. Uh, he asked me, are we ever going to find this thing, and how long is it going to take? And I said, well, we'll find it when we start looking in the right place. And we still haven't started looking in the right place for it. And, of course, now they're, they're terminating the search because they're running out of money, and they've, they've spent a ton of money looking in the wrong places. Is there a place that you think they should have been? Where have they been searching? I mean, I, have, I haven't talked about this on the show really since the, probably the month that the plane disappeared, so it's been quite a while. They're calling off the search now. Where have they been primarily looking? Well, they were primarily looking in the South Indian Ocean. That's not where they started the search. They immediately started the search where they knew it wasn't, which was immediately after takeoff, just coming up over the, uh, the Thailand Sea. Uh, the plane disappears from radar, so they start looking there. Of course, that's not where the plane was. Um, then they get these, these parameters that they started to use to try to analyze where the plane may have gone down. And they came up with a very convoluted formula that put them in the South China Sea, about a thousand miles west of Australia. Well, the plane could not have been there, or it could have been in a million other places. But that was like shooting a dart at a wall and saying maybe it's in this in this particular area. Um, they assumed a lot of information. They assumed the airplane never lost altitude prior to cra- to, to running out of fuel and crashing. Uh, it was at flight level 350, which is 35,000 feet, and they assumed it stayed there for whatever reason. Um, had that plane descended to 5,000 feet, obviously we're looking two or 3,000 miles different footprint than, than we would have been otherwise. They've spent, I see here, Bloomberg reporting on this, $135 million to try to find this plane. They have not been able to find the I mean, they've not been able to find it. I think everybody listening who's not familiar with aviation or, or any of the way that these things function, I'm one of them. I don't know much about this stuff at all. Uh, thinks what, isn't there you know there's gps on your car there's the black box on this i mean how can they not find you know what, what would be the usual ways they'd find a plane and why have they not been able to use those 
Yeah, well, let's, let's just start with the fact that not all, all airlines and not all countries are, are created equal. Um, had this been an American-based airline, this would not have been a problem as it was, at least not to this extent. Um, American-based airlines all subscribe to this device called ACARS, and ACARS stands for Aircraft Communication and Reporting System. And it basically is a satellite-based system that takes a signal from the aircraft and plots it and, and actually tells you everything about what's going on the, in the aircraft. I had a, a captain of a, of a 777 tell me once, if I flip a switch on a circuit breaker, it knows, and the ground knows. Um, unfortunately, Malaysia didn't want to spend that kind of money on their equipment, so they didn't have this full system. They had a version of ACARS, but that version only interrogated the aircraft, the electronics on the aircraft, every 30 minutes. And that's what's so surprising about this crash, because whenever we investigate a, a, an aircraft crash, we look through a timeline first. That's most important. And what was so important about this one was things happened in a, almost a sequence, as if somebody was doing it in a cockpit, a sequence of failures of various communications devices with the ground. So whether they had ACARS or not, it's, it's, it's doubtful that it would have helped a whole bunch if someone on board was actually turning these things off. There were 239 people on board this flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing, Sal. What do the governments involved in this search and what does Malaysia Airlines tell those 239 families happened here? What is the official storyline? Well, they, they gave them some comfort money to, to try to make it better, $3,000, um, if you can believe that. Um, and of course, under the under they the gave them three thousand uh, dollars a person. That's three thousand wow. dollars American dollars in, in comfort. My God, money. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, and under the under the laws, the the international aviation laws, they can uh, be entitled to some compensation, usually up into the range of one hundred uh, seventy five thousand dollars. Again, very very small payment for what they've lost, unfortunately. Um, but what, what, not only what they lost, but what does the aviation community lose? We lose the fact that we, we try to make aviation so safe, and it is, by the way. It is humongous, humongously safe. Um, but we spend millions and millions of dollars in this country. Anytime a plane goes down, figuring out every little minutia of why it went down to keep it safe. And so when something like this happens that we can't explain, it just makes aviation, it, it sets aviation back a bit, and especially the aviation from that country, Malaysia Airlines now out of business and, and reformed under a new business. But still, uh, that airline certainly uh, took a, a huge loss out of prestige from this. But the entire aviation community takes a loss because people look at that airplane crash and say, it could happen to me. Now, Sal, I know you don't know because nobody knows. So I'm not trying to, to force you to give us an answer that's impossible here. But what is the most plausible theory of what happened to flight MH370 in your mind? If you had to come up with one series of events that happened, and I know you're not saying it did, but if you had to come up with one, what's the most likely in your estimation? Well, we've been we've been looking at this for a long time, and if you, you know the NTSB works, they, they look for the probable cause. They never are 100% sure. But when you look at the probable cause of this, of this aircraft crash, you're thinking either something in the cargo bay, somebody on the crew, one of the passengers got into the cockpit, or a, a, a mechanical problem like hypoxia or a power interruption. Over the, over the three years now that I've been covering this thing, um, the power interruption certainly did not happen because we had power all the way through this flight for seven and a half hours. Hypoxia would not have caused the aircraft to turn. 
So, so that I've ruled out early on because the aircraft was on autopilot. It would have continued on autopilot all the way to Beijing. Wouldn't have landed itself, but it could have gotten there. Um, so you had two passengers on board the aircraft with stolen passports. That has never been explained. And you had a crew that the captain, at least, the 53-year-old captain, actually had a flight simulator in his house. And while the Malaysian government told us nothing was suspicious on that flight simulator, the FBI got a hold of the hard drive and found different. They found the actual path of the aircraft somewhat into the South Indian Ocean uh, months and months later. So foul play is the most likely scenario. I believe that this is a nefarious act. I believed it uh, from early on in this in this investigation. And as more and more information comes in, it seems more and more likely. So now let's let me just play this out a little bit as 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 somebody who is an amateur on the outside, doesn't understand avionics. So uh, if it was that pilot, how could he have accomplished all of this and get us to this point where we still can't? find the plane he would have would he have known about some of the deficiencies in the tracking system would he have been able to knock everybody out on the plane with uh, by turning off uh, the the oxygen i mean how could he have gone about this well he could have gone about it very very systematically and, and, and the evidence supports that uh, if you look at the aircraft that left from kuala lumpur about 30 minutes later it, he gives a normal handoff to ho chi Minh radar which is the next radar that would have picked him up in that small gap, there's about an eight-minute gap where no radio signal is going to be heard because they're out of range of both of the, of the two radar units. In that little gap, if you want to believe in coincidences, that's where everything starts to fail. The ACARS gets turned off. Two different transponders on board the aircraft get turned off. And now the aircraft starts to make a turn to the left, and some military radar picks up the aircraft starting a turn to the left, then another turn to the left, and then one going due south. And it remains on that southerly course for the entire remainder of the flight. Now, the military people didn't tell us this right away because Thailand radar didn't want to let everybody know they were watching air traffic. Um, But if we knew that earlier on, that might have helped a little bit. But the fact of the matter that the aircraft did not remain on autopilot and started making cautious turns all the way around to the south and then fly straight ahead to some point in the South Indian Ocean where we believe it is, um, it tells me that somebody on board was doing this consciously. So somebody was driving this plane. Yeah. You're you're confident in that. There was some person in control of the plane. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, so and you know, just, if, if it's a hypoxia situation where you say, well, both pilots were, were disabled, well, then the plane stays on autopilot and it continues going where it was going, which was Beijing. Is it feasible? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm just throwing this out there as this is sort of like, uh, you know, spy novel time. You know, this is something that somebody would come up with. But maybe one pilot somehow disables, maybe just you know, attacks and kills the other pilot with some weapon he's brought on board. So that pilot's out. He locks the door flips off the oxygen for the rest of the of the cabin, right, and then and then does all the rest of the stuff. Is, is that all at least possible? I'll tell you what, it's all possible, and I think you should do the screenplay, and I'll do the music for it. <laughs> okay, I mean, <laughs> because I, look, just, I just still, you can't I, make I, I never up, thought, it, when, it, this, it, when this broke, Sal, I never thought we'd be here three years later, they're calling off the search, and like, yeah, we just never found this thing. It's yeah. a jumbo jet with almost 300 people on board. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, you know, everybody kept asking the same question. When are we going to find it? When are we going to find it? Uh, with so little information. And, and it's almost in, you can only almost anticipate that this was going to happen as we got into it, because 
things just kept changing. The information that was being given out just kept changing. And, and you go to the recent, the more recent uh, finding of that of that flapper on, which is a part of the airplane that they think was found at Reunion Island in July of uh, 2015. Uh, they pick up that that thing, and, and and Malaysian Airlines says, "Okay, it's ours. It's from that plane. The plane crashed." And then the French government says, well, wait a minute, not so fast. It's a, it's a flapper on, but we don't know where it's from because there are no serial numbers and there are no maintenance numbers on the thing. Well, why are there no serial numbers and maintenance numbers on this? Did somebody put that there or did they wear off in the, in the ocean? And that's up to conjecture. Sal Lagonia is an aviation attorney and analyst on Fox News. He's been covering MH370 uh, since the very beginning. LagoniaLaw.com is his website. Sal, if uh, they ever find this thing, come back on and tell us what happened, all right? Be happy to. I hope they do. All right, absolutely. Thanks, Sal. Appreciate your time. And uh, Team Buck, we'll be right back. Buck Sexton, the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show. So, uh, team, everyone's getting excited about, and excited not necessarily in the way of like, yay, but just getting their level of excitement up, good or bad, about the Trump first week. Uh, seeing some interesting reports out there that he may he may decide to come out of the gates and go big with executive orders right away. I, I think you can argue... You can argue either way on that one. You can say that he wants to set the tone from day one. I, I get that. You can also say that maybe better to get get his bearings a little bit in office and let Congress kind of start chugging along and do something. But we'll see. There are some executive orders that people are saying could have very serious impact on some companies and some markets right away. Trump may withdraw the U.S., according to at least... A couple of sources I've seen from the TPP. Uh, I don't know if he's going to do that or not. Uh, Trump may do some environmental regulation, deregulation. Uh, we can talk about that as it happens. I really wonder what he's going to, because the first things that he does in office are going to be so heavily scrutinized by the press. And as we know, they're, they're rooting for, they're not rooting for policy failure. They're rooting for administration destruction. There's a difference. I mean, they, they hope this whole thing uh, goes up in smoke pretty quickly. Uh, they want Trump. They want Trump marched out of office. I think, honestly, they want him frog marched out of office in handcuffs. That, that That's their ultimate goal here. There is this desire that the Democrats have. It, they want to avenge. It's not just they're upset that Hillary lost. They want to avenge Hillary's loss. They want to avenge the repudiation of the Democratic Party and its progressive agenda as the inevitable future of this country. Psych. Apparently not. Apparently is not the inevitable. We have not reached the end of American history, and it is progressive. That is not where we are. Uh, I wonder if, if Trump is going to decide right away to go after some immigration issues. That's where you're going to see some of the heaviest fighting. Congress is with him on Obamacare. Congress is much more split on what to do about immigration. I mean, I'm sorry, Republicans in Congress, much more with them on Obamacare, and they're split on what to do about immigration. There's a 
deeper fracture within the Republican Party on that issue. So I I do wonder. I do have my moments of, hmm, about how this is all going to go. I, I also hope that there's some quiet days here ahead in terms of the protests and uh, certainly there should be no destruction or violence that happens at the around the inauguration from those leftist uh, loonies that are out there but that may be that may be asking for too much i think there's still the very real and unfortunate possibility that all it takes is one protest to get out of hand and it will overshadow a lot of what else is going on so we will see on that as well. I will talk a bit more about the inauguration tomorrow. We've also got a bunch of great guests lined up for Freestyle Friday. It'll be action movie quotes. And tomorrow we'll have a little special action movie quotes from movies that involve some depiction of the president. That's going to be the so, you know, clear and present danger, uh, Air Force One. I want I want action movie quotes from something where the president makes an appearance. All right, team. Until tomorrow. Shield time. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.